Hello everyone, and welcome to The Manacast, conversations about a vision of life that is truly good news for us, for our neighbours, and for the world. My name is Jacob Garrett, and with me, as always, is Jonathan Cornford. Hey folks! If this is your first time listening, Manacast is the podcast of Managum, a much bigger initiative, and Managum is an organisation devoted to the integration of Christian faith with economics and ecology. And today, as usual, I'm talking to you from Wurundjeri Land in Melbourne, in Victoria. And it's a place I've spent almost every day of my life, now that I think of it, apart from a few trips and holidays elsewhere. That is a long time in one place. (laughs) I think my life is almost the radical opposite of yours, Jacob. Um, So as usual, I'm talking to you from Jar Jar Land uh, in Bendigo, the central Victorian goldfields. and I've been here only about eight years, so I'm very far from being someone who's a, a, a at home here, I would say. Mm, mm. Uh, we'd like to acknowledge these peoples as the traditional custodians of these lands, and we pay respects to their elders past and present. On this episode of the Manicast, we're talking about the church as an economic community. It's a curious notion. And it's one that probably needs a bit of explanation. Uh, A few years ago, I couldn't have even told you what it meant for anything to be an economic community, let alone the church. Uh, Perhaps the first real introduction I had to anything like that idea came from you, Jonathan. Um, I think it was at a talk at the New Economy Conference a few years ago that we were both at. Mm. I didn't really know you then. Uh, We'd had a coffee together or something. But I didn't even know you were going to be there, I think. I went there mostly for a guy called Sam Alexander, who's a local Melbourne scholar. If you haven't heard of Sam Alexander, uh, you should check him out. I recently posted a video on Manigum's Facebook page. That's Facebook slash Manor Economy. And it's a video, video all about the practicalities of life under a new economy, a different way of doing economics. And that's exactly what the conference that we were both at and the new economy movement in general is all about. Hmm. But... I remember also, Jonathan, you were there speaking as one of only a few people who are Christian, and you and I have certainly spoken since about how you don't really see many Christians at things like a new economy conference or as part of the new economy movement in general. Yeah, and 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 I think it's a bit of a tragedy. Um, let me just say first, I just had a look at that Sam Alexander uh, video you posted, Jacob, and um, it's very good. I, I have a lot of respect for Sam Alexander, so I would encourage people to have a look at it. I think he's great. Yeah. Uh, so on the, on the degrowth economy, I uh, um, wasn't quite so sure about the beard though, Jake. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a new addition for him. I've not known him to have it as quite as long as that. Yeah, right. We probably could think about degrowth a little bit there too, maybe. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, yeah, very but, possibly. <laughs> maybe I'll pass it on to him. But it is very good stuff. Uh, Sam Alexander is very thoughtful and um, and and careful in how he talks about this sort of stuff. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, he's a good example of the new economy movement and perhaps one of its um, its its best and leading figures, I, I guess you'd say, um, in Australia. Uh, and it's a pretty diverse collection of groups and individuals and different organisations who who all share, a, a, I guess, a collective hope of imagining or envisaging what a new economy looks like that addresses the ecological crisis, that 
addresses inequality uh, and injustice and promotes flourishing for humans and for non-human creatures alike. Hmm. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, um, I think, a a really uh, great thing to be a part of. It's pretty diverse <laughs> movement. So, you know, you have to take the good with the bad in, in such movements, but some, some very good stuff going on there. It is a real tragedy, as you say, Jacob, as to how uh, few Christian voices uh, there were. I think at that conference where, that, that you were remembering, there were maybe just a, a couple of people speaking from a Christian perspective. Hmm. Um, Why do you think that is? Oh, well, um, well, it's. I think, one, the, the divide exists on both sides, uh, probably more from the Christian side than from the other side. I Generally, I found uh, when I have uh, spoken at things like that, I've been reasonably well received. If sometimes, if you, when I tell people what I'm going to speak about, I get some strange looks or quizzical <laughs> looks. Uh, but I, 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 my experience has mostly been one of being welcomed in such places. Um, I think uh, mostly it's Christians who have uh, not deigned to participate in such things. Um, so do you mean you get the same quizzical looks or even more when you speak of it with Christians? I think there would be certain uh, Christians for whom that would seem a strange thing indeed. Uh, yeah. So, look, it, it, I mean, the, the tragedy for me is, um, in from my perspective, the Judeo-Christian tradition is really the original new economy movement. It's it's like the old new economy movement. <laughs> uh, it's the it's the movement, and when I say the Judeo-Christian tradition, I mean. Uh, the story of Israel and of Christianity, uh, mm. it, they're the the movement that first really provoke, uh, promoted an economic vision of that addresses ecology, injustice, inequality, and promotes the flourishing of humans and non-human creatures alike. Uh, and we have just lost sight of that, and uh, there's little perception of that, not only amongst um those non-Christian folk in the new economy movement, the tragedy is there's very little perception of that within amongst Christians as well. Yeah, I mean, that was certainly my experience growing up, uh, going to church. Uh, the sort of thing we're talking about today would have been anathema to me. I wouldn't have seen how it goes together. And the sort of claim you just made that they were the original new economy movement, the Jewish community and then the Christians following them, that seems completely foreign to my initial understanding of Christian faith. Mm. And I think, I think that would be the, the, the norm, Jacob. I think that's, um, uh, that's been the case in Western Christianity for a few hundred years now, um, where we've been through a process where we've, uh, largely stripped out, um, the economic teachings of the church, which have been historically, uh, highly developed and quite rich and quite diverse, applying in different contexts. Uh, but as we've increasingly developed into an individualized uh, capitalist culture, we've stripped out a lot of that stuff from Christianity. As R.H. As, uh, Tawney once put it, we've stripped out a lot of what is most Christian about Christianity. <laughs> That's pretty savage. <laughs> Certainly from my perspective, like... Until only a few years ago, I definitely saw economics as something that's out there and quite removed from normal life and certainly from something like church life. Uh, it was quite a high-flying theoretical word that had to do with like stocks and 
prices of different currencies and things around the world and the price of yeah. oil and stuff. Um, so what exactly are we meaning when we say the church as an alternative economic community? Uh, yeah, so I mean, that word economy, uh, it, it, it based, the very basic meaning of it comes from the Greek uh, oikonomia, which means to manage the affairs of the household. So yeah, as you say, whereas most people think of economics as this very arcane uh, science uh, with lots of algebra and graphs, uh, it's really actually just about how we manage money and stuff and how we use our labor in the world, our work. Uh, that's the, the and how we what we consume, how we consume it, how we do, how we distribute what we produce. And you can think about that at any scale you like, uh, from just your house. You can think about the economy of just your household as a place in which some sort of production goes on. Uh, there's consumption goes on, there's distribution of goods that goes on, uh, there's even investment, uh, and there's certainly work that goes on. Uh, when we talk about, uh, you know, try to in Bendigo here, try to think about all the different sorts of economic transa- transactions, the shopping and the, the making stuff and the work uh, that goes on here. We talk about the economy of Bendigo. Well, in the same way, we when we think about a Christian community, just think of any local church, there's stuff that goes on in terms of money and goods being used uh, and the sharing of labor. Uh, Even just in your standard Christian church, as we find it now, that represents a a type of small economy. Uh, And what I'm suggesting is that actually we can think about that in much thicker and deeper terms. Uh, We can think of it as as an economy in much uh, more extensive ways than we're used to thinking. Mm, mm. I'm sure we'll get into some of that as we proceed. But you said Judeo-Christian, so perhaps we should start with the calling and the vocation of Israel in the Bible. Uh, Again, it's not one of those things that I think many people would necessarily go, Israel, oh, they were well known for their economics. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, can you just take us through the sorts of things you mean when you say that Israel's uh, vocation or economic calling was distinctive or different from the people around them? Okay, uh, don't go and do a thesaurus, or a, a, a Bible search for the word economics in your Old Testament because you won't find it. Um, so there's nowhere it anywhere in the Bible um, where you'll, you'll you'll see that word. But what we're talking about is all the different ways that they talk about what, the things I've talked about, work and money and stuff. Uh, and so the whole Bible, Old Testament, New and New is full of it. If we were to understand how Christian, how the New Testament thinks about those things properly, we have to understand how the Old Testament talks about them, because uh, it's pretty clear in the mind of Jesus and the gospel writers who record the life and teachings of Jesus and in the mind of Paul and the other apostles who are recorded in the New Testament, that they all see the Christian community as extending or joining in, taking up the vocation of Israel. So you can't really understand what the vocation of the Christian community is until you understand the vocation of Israel. So um, that's a pretty big thing to sum up. Um, let me just try and get to the headlines of that. Um, so, you know, the, so the, the headline uh, 
points where we where we see the vocation of Israel being talked about in the Old Testament is uh, that great point in Genesis chapter 12, where God calls Abram, later to become Abraham, and he uh, gives him a vision, a dream, if you like, that uh, Abram's going to be, through Abram, is going to come a blessing to all the families on the earth. So that's one one statement, if you like, of the vocation of, of the thing that will become Israel, that it's to be a blessing to all the families on the earth. And that's stated in, in similar ways, in other ways elsewhere, in, such as in Isaiah, where he talks about uh, Israel is to be a light to the nations, or it's to be a city on a hill to which all the nations come and learn peace and justice uh, and security and shalom. Uh, so you, we have these visions of Israel being called to to communicate God to the rest of the world, if you like. Hmm. And the way Israel is called to do that is by, firstly, and for, foremost, by its own worship of God. And the thing the Old Testament makes clear is that God is not worshipped by, particularly by the songs or the festivals or the temple sacrifices, but by the way that people live. Uh, and that's so we get that that classic uh, line in Amos where where God speaking to the people says, "I hate your songs, I hate your festivals, and I hate your religious ceremonies. Instead, give me justice, let righteousness flow like a river." Or a similar uh, passage in in Isaiah where he talks about what true fasting is, and it's it's uh, it's feeding the hungry and and housing the homeless uh, and doing justice. So this idea that God is worshipped, the true worth of God is demonstrated not by uh, what the, the religious things we do, but by the way that we live. And that requires a few things. That that From that flow, um, a number of other requirements. That means the rejection of false gods. And we often think about that as just literal idols, wooden statues, but there's a whole lot of false gods that need to be rejected. It requires that this community be, um, in the vision of the Old Testament, a community of shalom. And shalom is that great Hebrew word that means really all things in right relationship. It means we often translate it as peace or sometimes as prosperity, which is, is <laughs> can be misleading for people. But it's got a sense of wholeness and, and proper relation between different elements, right? Yeah, wholeness is a good word to uh, to 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 use, and and proper relationship. Yeah, that's a a good way of describing it. I think I heard heard one person once describe it as you could describe a brick wall as exhibiting shalom if all the bricks are in a well sitting, as opposed to all the other bricks in the wall, and it holds okay. together as a as a full structure. It is fundamentally a relational concept. Yes, so it mm. it 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 puts us in relation to other things. So if it's to be a community of shalom, that that requires that in the language of Deuteronomy 15, that there be no poor among you. So it's this vision of this, a community of enough in which everyone is well catered for. Uh, and if that's to be the case, uh, it's also required in this, in the language of Leviticus 18 and 19, that it be a holy community. Uh, and holiness is the attribute of God. And that's the attribute that's also expected, envisaged uh, for this community. And in Leviticus, um, the characteristic of holiness that comes forward 
Uh, we often think of sometimes holiness is um, talked about as meaning being set apart, uh, sort of quite a religious or spiritual idea. It is that, but actually it means something much more uh, direct. Uh, and it, so in Leviticus uh, 18, where they're going along with the instruction with holiness is that they're, they're not to be like Egypt from where they came and they're not to be like Canaan to where they're going, which means simply that they, are, they have to live differently. They have to be a non-conformed community. If you're going to be a community of shalom, then you're going to have to do things differently from everyone else. Mm, yeah, it seems like there's a tension there because if you're called to be a blessing to all families of the earth and all nations, it can't be this kind of standoffish, we're going to do our own thing isolated and walled in from everybody else. But yeah, at the same time, it's it's in opposition to the people around them, the peoples around them. That's right. So it's it's important to think of that holiness as difference, not separation. Hmm. Uh, not, not as in, uh, and and this was, I think, so this actually was precisely around this difference that the the Jewish people struggled, and that's where the struggles you see with with Jesus and Paul calling people to a, a view of holiness, which is not about uh, separating themselves away from uh, people, but it's living a different way. Because hmm. I think a lot of us, if we read the Bible, we get the impression that. The, the separation, the difference should be on the matter of the false gods, which it absolutely should be. But you often say how it goes further than that. It's not just this kind of purely maybe religious distinction. What other distinctions were they called to have? Well, in a way, it, it is all about not having false gods. It's just understanding how deep uh, what having false gods uh, goes, uh, what it means rather, Um and and how and what rejecting false gods really act, actually requires. Um, so you could say, you know, we don't have any idols that we need to reject here in Australia as a secular society. But actually, if we take the idea, as Paul put it, that greed is an idol, uh, then you could uh, be well within your grounds to say that Australia is a pagan idol worshipping society of of the first order. Mm. Uh, mm. So. Yeah, so uh, it, it it affects everything. If we're to live, if we're to worship God by the ways that we live, if we're to reject false gods, and then if we're to be a community of shalom with no poor amongst us, then that means uh, that and that requires that we're just going to have to do economics differently. That's the practical outworking. There's no <laughs> no two ways around that. To do those things, we just have to do material life differently from everyone else because if you look anywhere in human history, uh, the functioning of material life uh, it, as humans in the fall, as in our natural state, if you uh, put it that way, it, we, we see again and again replicated uh, division, injustice, inequality, oppression, destruction of the earth, these things happening again and again in every major civilization. Um, so if we're to, to not do those things, we're going to have to do material life differently. All right, so... If we've missed it growing up in church, or if we've never come to the church uh, from this angle at all, for Israel, what did that mean? The key story is the story of the liberation of the Israelites from Egypt. And, you know, that it's such an important story. It's hard to 
overemphasize. In fact, it's the story that has its culmination in Easter, which we're, as we record, uh, not that far away from. Mm, True. So um, if you think about that story, the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt and they're enslaved and the story... Exodus records them as they're being put to work building Pharaoh's store cities. This is cities that are used to store all of Pharaoh's wealth, all his grain and goods. Hmm. So the Israelites are enslaved to an economic system. And we should note Egypt is, if you like, it's a stand-in for, it's the, the civilization that in this story represents the pinnacle of affluence, of technological sophistication, and of culture in the world. And it's that culture, that civilization that has enslaved the Israelites such that they were told that they cannot worship God. So they're enslaved to affluence, technological development and sophistication, and they have to be liberated from it. So we all know the story of, of the liberation they're liberated from an economic condition, which is what slavery is, uh, out into the wilderness, into their freedom. But of course, uh, once they get across the Red Sea and into the wilderness, they face a new problem, and it's the foundational economic problem. How are they going to live? What are they going to eat? And it's into that uh, that situation in the wilderness that they, they get given the, the manna economy. Um, so... Uh, I'm guessing most people know the story of the manna in the wilderness. Uh, it's a, Did you get a, it? I don't know if you went to, to Sunday school, Jacob, but was it one that you ever got uh, growing up as a kid? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think like, I mean, just the cliff notes being that God provides a bread that falls like dew from the sky. Uh, and that's what the Israelites collect to eat when they're in the wilderness and they can't farm and there's not enough food for them otherwise. Yeah. And and usually the, the the main message that's taken from the manna story is that um, hey God provides what we need that's great isn't it um, hmm. and that's 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 true enough uh, that's sort of true uh, that actually does require a whole bunch of qualifications um, but actually it's not uh, in the manna economy God is providing but actually what He's providing is not just food but a system so if you remember there's rules that come with with the manna. So and the rules are that people have to collect it daily, only what they need. They can't store it up and they have to rest on the seventh day. Uh, and the outcome of the manna economy is it's it's described and this is all related in Exodus chapter 16. And the outcome is such that it says that none shall have too little which we get, that's important. But it also says that none shall have too much. So right there in the man economy, there's this outrageous concept, outrageous to us at least, that there's such a thing as too much. Now, if you think about it, the manna economy that they've been given is almost the opposite of what they've been liberated from in Egypt. So what were they doing in Egypt? They were building Pharaoh's store cities. What's the command uh, in the manna economy? Don't store it up. What happens to stored manna? It goes rotten. It's it's no good to anyone. Uh, 
none shall have too little. Uh, they had too little in, in Egypt and none shall have too much. Well, Pharaoh certainly had too much in in Egypt. And it's interesting thinking about that story that like what the Israelites famously complained about at that point in their journey through the wilderness is, oh, we should go back to Egypt. There we had fish and we had meat sometimes yes, and yes. all we have is this manna. And like you're saying, it's they were liberated physically from that system and from that culture and that civilization. But along those lines, you perhaps get hints that they weren't quite liberated spiritually or mentally from that way of seeing the world because they're suddenly like, oh, we should go back to being slaves. We should go back to Egypt where we were slaves because at least we had fish and we had meat. Yeah, so you get this... Um... Uh, I mean, this happens throughout their their time in the wilderness. These grumblings about going back to to Egypt, and uh, you know, I, I guess one way of summarizing the story is that was uh, wasn't that hard to get the Israelites out of Egypt, but it was took forty years to get Egypt out of the Israelites. Mm. Mm. Uh, so yeah, so they they're, they're living by this this system. That the final component of the system is that they had to rest. Um, and that's where the institution of Sabbath, right, which we think of as as a religious command, but here it's it's a foundational, simple economic command. It's basic industrial relations, if you like, that everyone gets a rest. Um, and which makes me think. Uh, so actually, um, Ched Myers, who's one of the people who writes about this be- best, um, he describes that the whole system of economics. Uh, in the Old Testament, he describes it as Sabbath economics because the Sabbath idea of the Sabbath is is so um, central to it. And I would recommend people who are interested in taking this further, looking up Ched Meyer's uh, quite short booklet on uh, the biblical vision of Sabbath economics, I think is the title. And we mentioned Amos before. It's like the Sabbath, at least in Amos and elsewhere, I know the prophets are very against sabbath breaking and i think there's this towards the end of amos is this very memorable passage where he basically says didn't you have enough fill of swindling each other in the market and doing all this economic activity to try and get rich six days a week that you have to break it and do it on the seventh as well yeah it's this same sort of mental desire to to engage in life in a certain way rather than the way god's taught and laid down it's actually a, the the idea of Sabbath is a very rich and deep concept, and so it's much more than just not um, not doing stuff one day a week. And so, actually, the so the other thing that happens while they're wandering around in, in the wilderness for those forty years is they're being given the law, right? And mm. um, the whole idea of the giving of the law is to prepare the Israelites for their entry into the promised land, which is. Uh, yeah, it's the to be the land of of milk and honey, the land of abundance and flourishing of the good life, if you like, mm. uh, which it is, and that's that that it's the promise of the promised land, I guess. But the thing that we don't really uh, realize that we haven't paid sufficient attention is that the promises of the promised land, uh, the milk and honey, if you like are all conditional. It always comes with a very big if. So again and again, we see, particularly through the books of uh, Levit- Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we hear the refrains, uh, uh, the rains will fall in season, the land will produce uh, 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 an abundance of fruit, uh, your threshing will overtake your your sowing, and so on and so forth, if you follow the way that I'm showing you. It's conditional that you follow uh, 
the the way of life, the vision of life that I'm laying before you. And that's what the law is. Um, so the Hebrew term is the Torah. Another way of translating that is the instruction. So um, I don't know if how many people have read uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers and Exodus. It's <laughs> difficult books to read, but they're they're full of all these sorts of instructions, which mostly don't seem to make sense to you know twenty um, first century Australians or, or Western people. But but actually, what it is um, to an ancient people in that particular context is a vision of the good life, and and there's a whole lot of uh, economic stuff uh, in the Torah in the law that's that's given them um and most people would be aware of i guess the 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 really um key points uh in uh the torah which are of the economic instruction which are the israelites are commanded to not uh to charge interest of each other uh there's the the debt remission laws of uh Deuteronomy 15 where people are called to remit uh release people from debt every seven years. And that also means release from sl- slavery as well. And there's the, the Jubilee laws of Leviticus 25, where, where every 50 years, uh, all land goes back to its original owners. So they're the, the big picture parts of the vision, but there's a whole lot more in, in terms of the, uh, the laws of Torah around how people use land, uh, how their practice of agriculture, their use of animals, their use of other human labor, how they, they treat workers, um, their uh, use of debt and credit, uh, their practice of charity, all these sorts of things. So much of it is so related to daily life as well. Like they're very, very everyday laws, a lot of them. Oh, it's well, it's all about daily life. That's that's yeah. it's, it's it's content. Yeah. I really recommend Ronald Sider's book, uh, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger for a sort of modern take on a lot of the meaning of the Old Testament law for Christian people. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite a well-known book, isn't it? I've never really read it that well, uh, uh, properly, to to be honest. Yeah. He just, he just really takes the principles and and expands on them quite a bit. Um, Mm. But it's, it's written a while ago now. Some of it is a bit depressing when you read, like he goes, you know, Jubilee, this is what it means. Couldn't, 1980, I think it is, be the new year of Jubilee. Christians, are, and you go, oh, no. oh, that well, 2000 matter. was uh, the 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 year of Jubilee, uh, and that that was a significant movement in its time. I was a bit young to remember that. Yeah, I keep forgetting that, Jacob. Wow. <laughs> look, I, look, I think just bit, the one thing to take home from all of that, the economic instruction, is the the one way we can summarize it, or I think a useful way to summarize it, is that the. All the economic instructions of Torah mostly amount to something like a call to live within limits, to observe Mm. limits for the good of the whole, for the good of your neighbor, for the good of the earth itself, and for the good of yourself. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's perhaps uh, a summary not often taken away from it. Uh, We've said that that's Israel, and you said that uh, the Christian community took up a lot of that stuff. Jesus is fulfilling and expanding the Torah vision. He's not making up a new way of following God. He's quite clear on that. So how does the New Testament and Jesus teaching pick up and transfer that in a new context for uh, the next stage? Mm, yeah. So um, so again, it's pretty important to, to acknowledge how uh, 
central the vision of Israel is to Jesus and um, we see that from you know his announcement of jubilee in recorded in Luke chapter 5 or from the way in which Matthew's sermon on the mount really uh looks like a, a new Moses on the mountain bringing down the the law it actually um uh, uh, sort of replicates that and 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 within the sermon on the mount Jesus restating the law but but if you like even amping it up um and in in chapter 6 of uh the Matthew in the sermon on the mount you have uh, Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, which is sort of like at the center point of the Sermon on the Mount, that where he teaches us how to pray, and he puts at the center of of the Lord's Prayer the the prayer to to ask for, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we forgive those indebted to us, which is recapitulating, as we've just said, the mm-hmm. the the pillars, if you like, uh, of of the the Hebrew economic vision. So. Um, yeah, it's important to note the the way in which the vision of the Old Testament uh, informs the new. Um, so it's in Jesus' mind. And so Jesus talks about money and stuff a lot, um, as I think we've mentioned a lot. Uh, mm. And and they're really radical teachings about money and wealth. Uh, and and I think we, we don't really want to get into it. That, will, that probably one day needs to be its own podcast in itself. But just to note for, I guess, today, how much prominence uh, Jesus is recorded as having given to the to what we do with money and how we think about wealth to how we understand God's kingdom. Uh, if we don't uh, think right about these things, it's going to be hard for us to really come, come at this kingdom of God thing. Hmm. So um, I, I think that's the, you know, the, the, the really big stuff to take away from Jesus's radical teachings on economic life. But we see that uh, continuing on through the life of the, the early church as well uh, in, in, in the New Testament, not just in the Gospels. But so we, we see that really um, in the, the story of the birth of the church in the book of Acts. It's a story that has economics right at, at its heart, which is not really what something people normally pay attention to so um in acts chapter 2 which is the story of pentecost which most people know uh it's a story of the birth of the church and it begins that the the story begins in chapter 2 it opens with the uh, holy spirit being divided like tongues of fire amongst the gathered believers and uh the greek word that's used for divided uh, it's demarizo or something. I don't actually speak Greek. How, how would you say that, Jacob? <laughs> I don't know. I'm only four weeks into my Greek course this year. Oh, no. I, I suspect I'm making <laughs> it sound more Spanish than it should. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the Greek word that's used for that, the the tongues of flame are divided amongst the, uh, the believers, can, can also be translated, perhaps better translated, as distributed amongst the believers. And the significance of that is that word only appears one other time in the book of Acts. And it's at the end of that very same chapter when the believers begin to distribute the same word, their goods and possessions amongst each other. Right. Yeah. So the birth of the church begins with a distribution of spirit 
and ends, the story of it, ends with the distribution of material goods, which is a great way of summing up really, I guess, the the whole biblical theme about economic life, which is that spiritual life must inevitably and inexorably flow into material life. That's the proper movement of spirit. And and we also read that like the Luke's quite clear talking about how everybody had enough taking up that manna idea. Um, that there were you know it's a, quite a bit of time really is spent on the distribution of bread to I think it's the poor and widowed in Jerusalem and those kinds of things and there's there's umming and ahhing about how that should be managed but no one's there thinking it's not a core activity yeah and 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 in chapter four of acts it's we're told that there was no poor among them mm. precisely the fulfillment of De- deuteronomy 15 yeah that's right so but i think like i've studied acts a little bit and a number of people read acts and they come to that point i've done it in bible studies with teenagers as well as, well as adults and you get to that point you go okay so what does that mean for us the the it looks quite communist uh, many i had one <laughs> kid in a bible study basically say so christians are communists and I go, well he, he wouldn't have been the first person to say that <laughs> yeah so like i've read a few uh commentators on those sorts of passages and they often are quick to point out well well this is a specific context and a specific instance and no one was compelled to give their goods and uh everyone's doing it of their own volition and it's not this kind of requirement. What should we make of it, do you think? What do you say about that passage? Yeah, well, I mean, it's quite right to point out um, that it was not a requirement and that uh, no one was compelled to do anything like that. And that the story itself makes it very clear. And uh, the whole history of early Christianity also, it, that it continued to stress the voluntary nature of of Christian economic action. Um, however, if if that's sort of the point we we leap to, just <laughs> looking for an out clause, if you like, um, mm. then we've probably missed the point of the story. Maybe uh, right. if that if that's really what we're we're looking to. the The whole point of the story is here's what it looks like when people are completely captured by the Holy Spirit and by the Kingdom of God. This is what happens, and there's not people aren't being compelled to do anything, but their whole relationship to their stuff, how they think about money and stuff, just changes. Mm. Just they want to do something different with it because they have the whole a whole new mind. That's what metanoia, the word repentance, means. They've suddenly see things in a whole new new way, and they use their stuff differently. They start sharing it in ways which. Uh, suddenly becomes strikingly noticeable to everyone else around them uh, how how these Christians are behaving. Yeah, and it's sort of reading that and reading a little bit around it as well has made me wonder about like many, many people in Australia, Christian people in Australia's attitudes towards private property. We have quite a, I think, absorbed sense that what I have is mine and I can give it freely, but I can also withhold it. And that's that's fine. That's how private property works. But it seems to result sometimes in this kind of lower bar of, well, I can't be asked to give or give up beyond a certain extent. Like that's, that's clearly mine and it's fine and it's justified that it's mine. Um, do you think that kind of maybe preoccupation with a certain standard of living 
um, keeps people from engaging with maybe the more radical side of this this um, form of community life we see in Acts? Oh, certainly. Our, our, our fear of um, does this mean that I'm going to have to do without some of these things that I'm used to having and that I take for granted, uh, and the th- how threatened we are by that that uh, that question and that the possibility of that the possibly being a possibly being a yes to that question mm. means that we don't want to ask it. So uh, absolutely, uh, I think the the way we approach these questions often um, uh, totally shaped by um, you know and very understand it's the entirely human thing to do to want to protect what we have. Uh, so you know that it requires that the only way you can come at this stuff is actually if you're beginning to have your mind reshaped to to say actually to begin to wonder is there a better way to live than this if we if we're only coming at it from the side of this is something that i'm supposed to do or meant to do or this is you know some sort of moral obligation i have there's no way no life-giving way of coming at that that equation that's why that you know the story of the rich young man is such a tragic story in the gospel and and jesus says for a good reason how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of god look i think that the upshot is is not so much is again and again not what we're we're being asked or required to do but actually what is good for us being led to where does the question where does life lie what's a good life actually look like uh, and that only comes once we start to pay i think better attention to the quality of our own lives once we start to pay real attention to what's happening in the world to other people and to the earth and to see our lives as related to that the more you do that then you have to be led ultimately to the question of well actually is this a good way to live and what's a uh, and the answer will be if by this we're talking about the 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 australian norm if you like uh, and the answer will have to be no as if you watch alexander samuel alexander's video that we talked about becomes mm. very clear mm. um and so the question is what is a, a life-giving way to live a way that is life-giving to me and life-giving to those around me and life-giving to the world mm, it's not this minimum bar of what must i do to be saved or what must i do to inherit eternal life exactly it's the wrong question it's, the question is what in what which direction does the path to life lie yeah so i mean jesus is famous for his teaching on money but some people see a discontinuity between jesus and um the main writer of the rest of the new testament paul um, do we see any hints or glimpses of these kinds of things in the letters of Paul or the other pastoral epistles? Yeah, we do. And and I, again, um, N.T. Wright is good on this stuff. You know, it's funny that we the way we've been somehow just trained to read Paul is that we managed to screen out a lot of stuff that he says. We just don't really pick up on it. And we, we only read him in certain ways so that we only see certain things. But it's all there. Paul has some um, some pretty radical stuff to say about, I guess, what we would call countercultural lifestyle. Um, you, you know, the obvious clangor is is Romans twelve, where um, once again, uh, just like Jesus, Paul sums up the vocation of Israel. He says, 
So he's uh, uh, talking to the, the Christians of Rome. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, to present your bodies as living sacrifices to God, for this is your spiritual worship. So the idea that we can only worship God by the way that we live. And therefore, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the, your mind. That if we're to worship God with our lives, we need to live non-conformed lives. And then Paul fills that out in uh, the rest of uh, Romans 12 and 13 and 14 with, uh, I, I guess you'd call it teaching on ethics, uh, living differently. Um, in, in Ephesians 4, uh, Paul writes to the community in Ephesus and he writes to the basically a community of Gentiles. And he says, you can no longer live as the Gentiles live. Mm. <laughs> it's hard to find a, a more countercultural um, statement than that. Mm. But he has some stuff to say specifically about economics as well. So, And, and we get there's a, some particularly really interesting uh, examples, which are not usually picked up on, one in Second Thessalonians and one in First Timothy, where we get glimpses uh, of the very high levels of economic sharing or economic community within the communities that Paul founded. Uh, and in both of those instances, Paul is writing, uh, he's having to address something uh, uh, negative that's happened. So in Thessalonians, it's people who aren't working. And in 1 Timothy, uh, it's uh, it's around the care of widows. And in both those instances, uh, actually what, what the examples demonstrate is that the Christians had such a strong mode of economic community of, of sharing between themselves that some people could live without working, without doing anything. Uh, and inevitably, <laughs> in the world of humans, there are some people who begin to take advantage of that. <laughs> they think, "Oh, that's a good community to be part of." <laughs> yeah, this is a this is a good wicket. Uh, and so Paul's writing well uh, to say to address that. Well, obviously. Uh, that's not on. Mm. You're going to need some sorts of. You're going to put need to put some sorts of structures in to make sure that that sort of thing doesn't happen because that's not good for anyone. Um, so uh, we we just get these glimpses of very high levels of economic community within Paul's um, uh, the communities that Paul founded, and in and we get another a much uh, more explicit statement and uh, look at that in Second Corinthians in chapters eight and nine, where Paul is travelling around. Uh, amongst the Greek-speaking communities, collecting money uh, to take to Jerusalem. And basically, he's uh, beginning to un undertake what we would call international and intercultural economic redistribution. That's what he's doing. It's it's international aid. Right. I don't think I'd ever thought about it like that before. And the story that he relates it to is the manna story. <laughs> so the, the way he helps people underthink about it is uh, the... The manna story, and he says the aim is that none should have too much. The aim is a equality or sufficiency. Mm. And of course, Matter Matters has been publishing a series of articles from Matt Anslow, the previous editor, about Revelation with this like really broad scope, powerful, big picture, big principles take on the economics and the economic system of Rome and what does jesus have to say about it and what does it mean for uh people who follow jesus in that system and it, it those pieces are really powerful in the way that they challenge and draw out relevance i think for us in our context um i'd really recommend those they're in manner matters from the late part of 2020 through to april 2021 those editions 
Yeah, they are good. And 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 yeah, it's little known that Revelation is a book of that it's full of economics. It's just jam packed with economic stuff. Yeah, it's not the way we think about it, and it certainly wasn't the way I thought about it till I read those pieces. Um, so we probably don't have time to get much more into it than the New Testament, but can you just give us a a, a little sneak peek of perhaps what will definitely have to be a, a future episode in its own right? Of um, did that continue beyond the time of the New Testament? How did it go in the early church? Ah, uh, yeah. So the the answer is an emphatic yes. So f- for the first three hundred years of Christianity, particularly, um, which was the time when Christianity was still an outlawed and and uh, persecuted religion, uh, one of the things that made Christians distinctive in the Roman world and the thing that both made them evangelically attractive to others, but also brought the heat down of the Roman authorities upon them. Uh, one of those things was the way in which they shared their goods uh, with one another and they cared for the sick and the poor, uh, not just their own sick but and poor, but for, for other people as well. Um, yeah. And so it's a, it's a, it's a actually a pretty critical story about about early christianity uh that we sort of need to know Mm. Mm. well we'll definitely devote much more time to it in a future episode i'm sure um just to finish off for us then what are some little tidbits some little orientation revisioning sort of things that we could take away from these sort of considerations from biblical economics thinking about the church as an economic community now that we hopefully understand what that might mean what do you think it entails for us? What could it look like in our context? Oh, well, yeah, there's so much. There's so much we could think about. Um, up, Should we all join the new economy movement? I would at least... Is li- that the application? I would at least like to see a few more Christians looking it up and, and getting in, uh, at least checking in on some of the events. Uh, there, uh, A lot of them you can uh, attend uh, for free or not much. Um there's a lot of you know stuff on Zoom these days. Uh, certainly that, um, yeah. But in terms of uh, actually thinking, uh, I would just encourage it would be really good for uh, Christians to look at their own churches with new eyes and to begin to start to see them. What what it would mean when you start to see them as a li- a little mini economy and to pay attention to the flows of money within that community, uh, what, how money comes into it, where, how it gets used and how it gets distributed, what for, what it, what it does, uh, how property is used. Obviously, that's a big one. Um, how goods might be shared and how work might be shared, whether that's through people, you know, all chipping in at the church working bee or actually the sorts of uh, much more informal sharing of meals when someone's sick that happens within the community, things like that. Just start to pay attention to what already exists in the economic life of a a Christian community, and to to imagine what if you did that a bit more. Those existing things, mm. and importantly, this is economics in that very down to earth sense that I never thought existed. Of like when we were tossing around the idea for this episode, you're talking about uh, releasing labour into the community in these kind of economic ways of talking, and I go, I don't even know what that is. But then you say, well. Is actually just getting together and doing stuff, working yeah. together. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I guess we do do that in church. Or that's actually what your offering is. 
So when people stick their money in the in the whether it's a a, a dish or a bag or whatever your your church uses, um, you put your money in the offering, and that usually is going to go to pay someone's wage. What that is is a form of income sharing to release someone to do good work in the world. Now we have put all sorts of structures and formalized what we just think about that way uh, as a very sort of religious church thing to do. But actually you can take that same principle and apply it to all sorts of things where we can put our money together to release people to re- to release their work, good work into the world. Yeah. And it's a, it's a perfect place to be doing that. Mm. And of course that's what, that's how it was founded, <laughs> a place where that happens. And we still do it. You're right. In all these kinds of different ways that we don't really think of in economic terms. If you like, you could say that the the local congregation is a perfect technology for experiments in economic community. Technology meaning what? Ah, it's a so it's a it's a, a, a technology in that it's um it's this structure, this thing that we have that we can do things with, right? It's a, a way of doing things. Obviously, it's much more than that. Right. But it, it's just the structure of the Christian community, uh, particularly I'm thinking the way it gathers people of different generations in healthy churches, that is, uh, young and old, and uh, gathers people of different economic status together uh, and therefore different capabilities and needs and puts those together. And you have this... Uh, basically a system where you can have all sorts of interesting things where people contribute what they can contribute to meet someone else's need and vice versa. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, hopefully that's uh, gotten a few things in motion in your own mind. Uh, If you're listening to this, we hope you enjoyed the discussion. Thanks for listening. Um, If you did enjoy it, why not send it to a friend? If there's someone uh, in your church community or someone maybe outside your church community who's Um, wondering what the church is or could be, uh, you could send it to them. In the meantime, if you want more good news economics, that's what we aim to provide here at Managum, you can check out Manor Matters. Manor Matters is what we mentioned before, the quarterly publication of Managum. You'll find articles in there from things about violence and economics in the book of Revelation to, I think, Jonathan, you're talking about the Anthropocene and uh, Genesis in our forthcoming edition, but we've also got very... Very down-to-earth, very day-by-day practical articles as well about uh, what the fiber content of your uh, clothing is or, you know, I think I'm writing about how to ride your bike more in the forthcoming edition. (laughs) So if any of that um, appeals to you or interests you, check out managum.org.au and you'll find Manor Matters there. That's also the same place to go if you'd like to support us financially. Um, You can go to managum.org.au and there's a little thing that says become a supporter. Many thanks to all of you who do already uh, give to support our work. We leave you now with a quote from Julian the Apostate, the famous pagan emperor after the Roman Empire was starting to move more in the Christian direction from the mid-4th century uh, AD. And he writes a lot of letters that have survived complaining about the Christians. And he was raised Christian but became pagan in later life and tried to re-paganize the Roman Empire, mostly unsuccessfully, partly because of the sorts of things we've been talking about. And he writes in one letter, uh, it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Galileans, that's the Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well, meaning pagan poor, all men see that our people lack aid from us. And he claims that that's 
one of the reasons people are going over to Christian faith, that it actually makes life better. <laughs> they found it as the path to life. Jonathan, thank you for the discussion. Uh, thank you for all your insights. Thank you, Jacob. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs>